Hey, this is Eric McCoy. And again, I want to try to walk a mile in your shoes and hope you, you'll be able to walk a mile in our shoes. And as always, I am with Lona Curry. That's right. I am Lona Curry and I am known as your transgender mentor. And I'm grateful to be here with my partner and co-host, Mr. Eric McCoy. We're going to take a walk down a trail that is extremely passionate for both of us. Um, Eric's going to bring his amazing ability to bring to you facts and and logic and i'm just going to come in behind with a little bit of heart thoughts and all that good stuff so let's walk that mile man let's do it absolutely all right so this episode is probably going to be the one that sits the greatest in my heart which mm. sort of evolved you know evolves around the stigma of substance abuse and, you know, I've done episodes on my other podcasts on this topic, but we're going to look at things a little more in depth, I think. You know, hatred, as you know, this has been our focus so far, yep. <laughs> is grounded within much of our culture. Yeah. And, you know, even those who are fully dependent on drugs can say they hate it. Mm-hmm but for different reasons, right? You know, people have different reasons for hating it, but the reasons I find this so important is that hatred will never allow us the ability to solve the actual problem. Yes. You know, anger, rage, and hatred will always cause us to miss the point. Yep. Not think clearly. And we're going to stay locked in a world that just pushes the, real problem aside and a lot of times focuses on a problem that isn't really the actual problem yep yep the band-aid effect yeah absolutely so where did most of this hatred begin and you know as the term uh stigma relates misinformation pushed by people who have a voice that people actually listen to and trust Many that hate will suddenly change their minds once it has hit home. Oh, this yeah. Something that I have always found kind of ironic. Yeah, right. you know, we set a law, but then once it affects me, I got to change. Yep. 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 <laughs> it's an amazing thing, isn't it, man? Amazing. So, substance abuse, you know, creates problems, but sometimes what people see as the solution brings about unintended consequences, which are then put upon the people that the very solution was actually created to eradicate. Doesn't seem very fair. Right. (laughs) And I'm going to give you guys an example of this, right? So the cost of substance abuse upon our society. So taxpayers, we fork out tons of money for these people, you know, which I honestly, I think can make anybody angry again, if we're forking out tons of money. Sure. The question arises, Lana, who is at fault for this enormous amount of money? That's right. Well, the 50 year anniversary of our drug war that was enacted <laughs> by Nixon has been estimated to cost over $50 billion a year and cumulatively about a trillion dollars. Wow. Who pays for this? 
taxpayers. That's right. Now, this doesn't even account for the cost of, you know, incarceration and state or city things. This is just federal. Wow. You know, and then we have violence, we have murder, and we have crimes that are committed by drug abusers. Mm -hmm. So the question comes, are those a result of the drugs themselves or the legality behind drugs as our laws are making the cartels wealthy? Absolutely. Absolutely. You criminalize something, right? And it becomes valuable. Yep. Because of the risks, right? Money is going to make people take risks. That's right. That's right. Person buying it is going to pay the price for it. Absolutely. Every time. History, you know, should teach us things. But we they don't really seem to teach us in this country. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. agendas yeah. push knowledge away. Yes. And, you know, we continue to treat our citizens as stupid. That's right. Because, well, money. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. Man. Now, as I've said in this show before, I want everybody to please research what we are going to talk about today. Yes. Right? Yes. But I will help you get started. <laughs> we know you will. <laughs> but again, don't just believe us. All right. And for those with certain agendas, Lana, they won't. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) they won't. (laughs) Now, as we're unable to really gain videos from the beginning of our drug laws, right? I'm going to offer you guys a little bit of information about that story. So I'm going to give you guys a little historical information here. The first drug control law in the United States was a city ordinance, and it was passed in San Francisco, and it was in 1875 to try to stop the spread of opium dens, mm-hmm. right? There was no national drug laws that existed in the United States until 1906 with the passage of the, the Pure Food and Drug Act. Mm-hmm. Now, this act was passed as a result of the rising abuse of what were called patent medicines. You had uh, Mrs. Winslow's soothing. Up. You had heroin, yeah. right? That's Which right. By the Bayer Company, same that's company right. that makes our aspirin. <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> right. right. The I act said, basically, that patent medicines, they could be sold, but they had to have a label on them, right? That indicated what was in the product. We see this on everything today, right? This that's law had the effect, and this killed the patent medicine industry, which is interesting to me because, again, I'm a firm believer of education, self-responsibility. And that's what this law was. It didn't outlaw it. It just made it to where we had to educate those that were taking it. And then they decided that, you know what? I don't want to do it. Informed decision. Informed decision. Absolutely. And so in the early 1900s, right, the U.S. was, and this is just a little historical thing, becoming an important voice in the international affairs Right. There were issues that were surrounding surrounding opium consumption and production began to cause a lot of problems globally. Um, the U.S. declared a need for an international opium conference. Yeah. And so it was from this me- this meeting that came the first international opium agreement, which was in 1912. Right. And um, and so two years later, led by 
a guy by the name of Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan. Um, he brought this Narcotics Tax Act, which ultimately served yes. in Congress. And the supporters of this bill, they said very little about the dangerous effects of addiction. Right. But instead, they emphasized the importance of upholding the new international agreement to eradicate opium. Mm-hmm. And I love this idea, eradicate it. We're going to yeah. get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and mostly, though, in that time, though, too, not to interrupt, is we also wanted to eradicate the the people that we thought were the, you know, the ethnic or, or groups that we thought were bringing the opium. So, again, what I think we're going to find throughout this this episode today is that we're always covering up a deeper problem. Yes. Continue, sir. 100%. It wasn't as much about the substance as the users of the substance. That's right. Right. That's right. And opium was primarily the Asians and yep. the co- cocaine and the coca plant was the black people. Right. That's right. And so, in, you know, and so when you look at the act, actually, on the on the on its surface, right, mm-hmm. it was not prohibitive at all. Right. Right. According to a document that was actually on the DEA's website. I'm going to show you guys a quick image real quick. And this is, again, a document that's found on the Drug Enforcement Administration's website. Um, The Harrison Narcotics Act establishing the foundation of federal drug law enforcement was designed into law by President Woodrow Wilson on December 17, 1914. There was little political reaction for it or against it because nobody knew what it meant. It was probably believed that any federal regulation of the medical profession would be unconstitutional, an infringement on states' rights. For this reason, the new law, at least on the face of it, was no more than a revenue measure providing for the registration and taxation of those who manufactured or distributed opium, morphine, heroin, or coca products, which have since been included within the legal definition of narcotics. Says it all. (laughs) And so, so... You know, it only allowed doctors to prescribe in the normal practice of medicine, which was a very vaguely worded clause that was in this bill, because it declared that doctors could not prescribe opiate-based drugs or cocaine or coca plant-based drugs to addicts, since addiction was not a disease. Right. And so this led to numerous doctors that were being targeted by police, and eventually they were imprisoned. In turn, the cloudiness of the wording led to the underground market formation, right? Resulting in criminal involvement by both users and producers of opiates and cocaine. Amazing. This brings the interesting thing, criminal involvement, right? Police enforcement, right? They began to go up. Quality of life for those that were using began to go down. Yep. Government also began an aggressively racist propaganda attack against, again, cocaine-using Black Americans and opium-using, quote-unquote, Chinamen. Yep. Hysterical media. Um, You know, know, the stories that that claimed that white women using these substances were running off with men of different races. Yep. Doctors were targeted for helping those in need. Yep. Citizens who 
previously were medical patients suddenly became criminal criminals. Right? Yep. Yep. Forced to hang out in dens, brothels, you know, uh, saloons and, and, and bars at the time. That's where they were forced to be. And immediately you begin the, the birth of the stigma as dirty, criminalized, non-human human beings yes. because they're not deserving of help. This is not an addictive substance. It is a moral failing. Moral, exactly. A moral failing. These are sin. These are bad people. Yep. Right? Yep. Yep. And this this Harrison Narcotics Act set the foundation of the drug war as we know it today. Okay. And then what, what interests me more, right, is that when they actually found, and they did studies on this with the Harrison Narcotics Act, that the amount of opium and coca derivatives um, actually multiplied after the Harrison Narcotics Act. Why? Mm-hmm. Money, right? Yep. So Absolutely. they didn't find a huge amount of success in this, okay, in the, in the grand scheme of things. But as our country likes to do, we like to try things out and we like to yeah. see that they fail. So we like to try them again. Exactly. And we, again. Went, we went with another and run and everybody knows about this one. And this one was what was called the Noble Experiment, right? Also known as the Volstead, Volstead Act or Alcohol Prohibition began in 1920, lasted 13 years, ended in 1933. Now, ironically enough that this was the only substance, right, that an amendment was actually made to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this was that Congress, right, and again, we'll sort of look at this when we talk about the Marijuana Tax Act, was that Congress did not even believe that they had the authority to set a general criminal law that applied to all states, and the question is, do they really? I don't think right. they do. No. I still to this day. Yeah. I'm with you. Right. Right. But they found a way to do it. And they, they said, you know what? Well, we'll make it an actual amendment to the Constitution, mm-hmm. which was the 18th Amendment. And it was designed to reduce crime and corruption, <laughs> solve social problems, reduce the tax burden created by prisons and poorhouses, right? And improve health. And hygiene in America sounds familiar to another problem we're trying <laughs> right. to solve today. <laughs> it's creating the opposite effect as it did then. <laughs> well, it must have worked, okay, before because we're we're trying it to we're still doing it today. So still it doing had it. to have worked. <laughs> Something right? had to have worked, yeah. right? <laughs> well. I want to tell you, sadly, despite many who believe that it was a success early on, and it actually was probably a success early on, because consumption of alcohol did go down, right? We weren't seeing as many health problems as a result of drinking, and society appeared to becoming better for a while. Yeah. (laughs) And this was short-lived. Yes. And towards the towards the end of the 20s and obviously into the early 30s, it sort of started changing direction. Absolutely. Now, you see, everybody, I'm hoping everybody's listening, that once we make something illegal, prices go up, corrupt become wealthy. Yep. Corruption within our government becomes known. And of course, the mob. That's right. 
They latched right. onto, now everybody That's listen right. to this, another vice that made them wealthy because it was not alcohol prohibition that brought the gangsters. Correct. They already existed. Why? That's right. Harrison Narcotics Tax Act that was down in 1914 brought them an opportunity to make enormous amounts of money. That's right. So we already passed something before the Volstead Act that brought in wealth to them. So we're doing it again and we're just giving them more money. That's there right. Go. Here you go, brothers. Here's That's more right. Money. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> we'll yes. work together behind the scenes is what we're actually doing. <laughs> yes. So black market gained another substance. Right? And now today, though, of course, we blame drug abusers as the reason for crime. Yep. Yep. But is that what yep. brings crime? Murder and assaults? Or is it money? And the extreme value of something. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's always rolled downhill onto the user. The user has been the scapegoat since all of this. If there's no demand, there would be no supply. I think it's completely backwards. It's, it's, the supply is here. There is always going to be a demand as long as we continue to put people in not human situations. As long as we continue our reign of shame down upon the user, it's, it's always going to be this way. Right. It's always going to be Absolutely. And it's at what it, what, what really interests me in it, though, is when we look at that history, though, okay, alcohol prohibition, right? And then we compare it to our drug laws today. We don't want to legalize drugs today because it brings murder. Drugs bring crime. Bring, drugs bring corruption, right? And so now we looked at alcohol prohibition. We, we uh, appealed the 18th by the 21st. So, so there couldn't have been crime and murder and stuff like that going on during alcohol prohibition, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or was it the laws? I don't know. Let me show you a video real quick. Let's take a look. Excellent. Excellent. So wait a minute. Now, how did we have all of that violence and all that stuff around alcohol and then we make it legal again? Yeah, I know, man. I know. I know. I don't think the powers on either side could come to an agreement of who was going to be able to keep most of the money. And I don't think the government were able to to even stand next to our corrupt gangs. And so they say, hey, 
let's just come together on this. Come on, let's yank our power card, make it legal, taxable. But yet, we still have never done away with the the moral failing and shaming of the user that ends up becoming addicted. I right. mean, and that comes in a little bit, though, right? When we're it looking does. At history. I'm jumping I, ahead. Yeah, I want to tell you guys real quick about this. So there's a guy by Al Smith. His name, he was uh, an American um, politician. He actually served four terms as the governor of New York. He was a Democratic Party's candidate for president in 1928. And of course, he lost to Hoover. But he makes a praise to appealing the 18th Amendment by the 21st Amendment, declaring it against the Constitution, right? So why is there such a separation? I want to show you this video real quick. Of course, I am delighted, but not surprised by the final repeal of the 18th Amendment. I felt all along that when this matter was properly submitted to the rank and file of our people, they would readily see that it had no place in our Constitution. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, to estimate the benefit that will come to this country from the lesson taught to the coming generation to make it their business to see that no such matter as this is ever again made the subject of federal constitutional law. Now, I will say, though, again, that they have not put that into the Constitution regarding drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, it does throw out the debate. Does the federal government or does Congress even have the ability to regulate what you want to consume? Right. What you want to put in your body. Why does the federal government have that ability? When you look at actually what the what the congress's role is it actually is not within that correct um correct. actually in the 10th amendment to the constitution basically says that that those things that are not regulated by the federal government are given over to the states mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why do we have all these federal drug laws and that's the question you know yeah he was, yeah he was trying to educate us don't do this again Right. <laughs> but we're different. We do it different. Times. Gonna, it'll work this time. Eventually, it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So as the Volstead Act failed, right, the U.S. decides that, you know what, let's give it another go. Right. <laughs> let's let's check this experiment out again. Didn't work before. <laughs> Didn't really work well with the Harrison Narcotics Act, but it's going to be different right. now. We're now in the later 30s. That was in the 20s. The other one was in the, the, the teens. Yep. <laughs> so it's 1937. Right. The Marijuana Tax Act and this act yeah. passed. And this is the guy that pushed this is somebody that has always fascinated me. And his name is Harry Ann Slinger, and he was the head of the FBN, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which later became the DEA, the Drug yep. Administration. Restrictions on cannabis as a drug, okay, actually started in local laws in New York and actually in 1860. There were actually a bunch of states that actually passed laws against marijuana before the federal government did. They were typically racially motivated laws. Southwestern states basically said, you know, we've seen all these Mexicans coming in. Yep. They're bringing all this 
crap with them that they're smoking. Yeah. Them here. So we're passing laws. Northeastern states said, you know what, we're hearing about the stuff in the West. We don't have the Mexican problem, but we don't want to have that here. So we're going to pass. Yeah. Laws. And then Utah, yeah. Utah had its own, uh, <laughs> you know, being That's the most, Utah. Being the um, All right. <laughs> the whole story behind that, but I don't want to take too much time to get into that. But just know they're Mormons. <laughs> All right. So the so restrictions on cannabis again started on state levels. Now, um, the federal Pure Food and Drug Act that was again in 1906 regulated the labeling of patent medicines that actually did contain cannabis um, within them. Anslinger, okay, had not been active in that process until about 1930. Now, this is what was interesting and always fascinated me about him, was he liked to collect stories of marijuana causing crime and violence. And he ignored evidence that allowed for other interpretations. Right. Not, not, it did not go along with his agenda. No, not at all. Again, agendas. Right? Yeah. Dr. Bromberg, okay, Walter Bromberg pointed out that substance abuse and crime are heavily confounded and that none of the group of, they did uh, over 2,000, uh, looked at over 2,000 criminal convictions that he had examined was clearly connected to marijuana's influence, right? He also ignored a discussion that was forwarded to him by the American Medical Association, where in 29 of 30 pharmacists and drug industry representatives objected to the proposal to ban marijuana. Sure. Not a doctor, but he decided to not listen to them either. Right. Exactly. As head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, Anslinger sought out to old and ultimately received an increase in reports about smoking of marijuana in, in 1936. And this ultimately continued to spread at a very fast pace up until 1937. And before this, the smoking of marijuana had been relatively small, right? And again, primarily confined, confined to the Southwest. Yeah. Again, particularly among the Mexican border, those damn mm -hmm. Mexicans. The, the Bureau first prepared a legislative plan where they wanted to seek out a law from Congress, of course, that would place marijuana and its distribution under federal control. Schedule one. Correct. That became later when they scheduled it. Yeah. So and Anslinger ran a campaign against marijuana. And he did this actually on some radio shows. Um, and his view was very clear. And um, I want to show you guys a really quick image of a statement by Harry Anslinger. Okay, Harry Anslinger, by the tons. It is coming into this country, the deadly, dreadful poison that racks and tears not only the body, but the very heart and soul of every human being who once became, becomes a slave to it. In any of its cruel and devastating forms, marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of horrid specters. Hashish makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest mannered man who ever laughed at the idea that any habit could ever get him. Wow. What a fear monger. That's serious. That is serious. I smoked a lot of weed and I don't know what kind of crap they're smoking. <laughs> I know. I know. 
Because, wow, <laughs> that is packed full of fear, man. And if you want to really get an agenda across, then you package it like that. And people that are living in their rural areas, they believe that, hear that, buy that. And now, what have you got? Absolutely. Now, now his, his most infamous story, and this was actually in the American uh, magazine that concerned a guy by the name of Victor Licata, mm-hmm. who killed his family, right? So there was the story of it. There was an entire family that was murdered by this guy. Again, lived in Florida. And then when the cops arrived at his home, they found him sort of staggering around. He had an ax and he had killed his father, mother, two brothers and a sister. And they sort of looked at him like he was in a daze. He had no recollection of having committed the actual crimes. The officers knew him the way they described him as a sane, a quiet young man. And so they tried to figure out what the reason was for this. And this is the boy said that he had been in a habit of smoking something, which youthful friends called, they called him muggles, which was a childish name for marijuana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, this, story was, this story was referenced in the 1937 anti-weed film, Reefer Madness. Reefer Madness. <laughs> And it is one of 200 violent crimes that were documented in Anslinger's. And he actually had a portfolio called Gore Files. It was a serial. And it's since been discovered that Licata murdered his family due to a severe mental illness. I was thinking it sounds like classic schizophrenia if you, you know, can diagnose as such. Absolutely. And uh, and he had been diagnosed in his when he was younger and not wow. because of cannabis use. <laughs> right. And actually, researchers have now proven that Anslinger wrongly attributed 198 of those gore files of the 200. Right. That he wrongly attributed it to marijuana usage. The remaining two cases, they couldn't be disproved because there weren't any records that existed concerning the actual crimes. Wow. So during the Marijuana Tax Act hearings, Ann Slinger rehashed the 1933 Licata killings while giving testimony to Congress. And in the 1930s, Ann Slinger's anti-marijuana articles often contained racist themes. Yep. I want to show you this video or this picture. So Harry Anslinger, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S. and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. There's say music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana usage. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Yes, that's what causes them to seek sexual relations. (laughs) And always with the white women interracial, because we have figured out somehow, somewhere, that white is supreme. Again, I'm still trying to figure out that, where we've come up with that. Absolutely. But. That and 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 again, that always goes back to that deeper problem. So we're going to make these big allegations of fear and, and place all of this onto something, so they don't really see. It's a nice uh, 
diversion from what we really want, which is total white supremacy. Absolutely. Now, I want to show you guys really quick, a quick video of Harry Anslinger so you can get an image in your head of That's right. what he right, actually right. looks like um, and his tone of voice and how he likes to <laughs> likes to rile it up. Yeah, get him going. The Treasury Department intends to pursue a relentless warfare against the despicable dope-peddling vulture who preys on the weakness of his fellow man. Oh, so the dope seller is the vulture that preys on his fellow man. Yes. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, now imagine this and picture this, okay? Again, going back to, you know, if you're living in that time frame, okay, the usage of marijuana was not profound. Right. Right. I mean, it wasn't everybody in the United States smoking weed. Um, it was clearly a tactic to control minorities and other various Absolutely. groups, especially when you look at some of his other. He's also got a whole lot of different racist statements. You can always look up his quotes oh, yeah. um, if you want. When you have a video such as Reefer Madness, that yeah. you know, um, which is uh, a very propaganda-ish type video promote fear right yes. imagine living in that time frame and you haven't really smoked marijuana you know as as the average american probably hadn't right many hadn't even seen it many didn't even know anyone that was smoking it so this was completely absolutely right yeah. so then you have um you know individuals like harry anslinger that are out promoting and one of his greatest quotes that he told in Congress was marijuana creates in its users insanity, criminality, and death. Mm -hmm. And whether he had anything to do with reefer madness or there's a little bit of uncertainty on whether he did. Um, but it was reefer madness was the year before mm -hmm. marijuana tax act went into effect, which was 1936 reefer madness. 1937 was marijuana tax act, whether he had anything to do with it, or he was able to just latch onto the propaganda. We're not really right. sure. But imagine, imagine being in that time. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hear all of this stuff about this crazy thing. And then you see a movie, right? Reefer Madness. And then eventually it becomes outlawed in Congress. What are you going to think? It's going to be a lot of fear, probably hatred. Without a doubt. And, and, and again, it's also coming from figures in that are sitting in, in seats of uh, of people that we're supposed to give our trust to. So those people were profoundly in trust of these organizations, you know, police and, you know, FBI and government. So they were listening to this. Yep. So here's a, here's a little clip. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. You will meet Bill, who once took pride in his strong will as he takes the first step toward enslavement. Hoping the soul-destroying reaper, they find a moment's pleasure, but at a terrible price. Debauchery, violence, murder. Suicide and the 
ultimate end of the marijuana addict. Hopeless insanity. See this important film now. Before it is too late. Before it is my gosh and we covered every basis suicide murder death sex i mean that was, that was a little that was um i took a little part out just because the length of it but that was yeah. commercial the at back at that time for the actual um for the actual movie reefer madness so yeah. that's fear man it puts it that's scary Completely. scary shit i don't want to ever smoke pot I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to rape anybody. And I, that's right. So I'm not going to commit suicide. That's right. And if I don't that's smoke absolutely. weed, none of that will happen. None of it will happen at all. <laughs> Nobody will ever go crazy. It's all the weed's fault. Well, how do we systematically, though, begin to? And they used a, that trailer had a, had a beautiful word about what the deeper problem is. It said becoming a slave. So how do we continue our, this country's, you know, buy for slavery is we vilify all of those that we want to enslave. Yeah. And so we keep them that way. We knew the musician in the trailer there. We knew the musician was going to be the pot smoker before he ever he ever picked up. Why? Right. He's dressed in all black. I mean, we have to we have to open our eyes so wide that we even start to begin to see the underlined little just little bitty hints of what people are saying and things are, are saying as we watch even our media today, our media today. You know, this is not even just well, we're even, you know, taking a walk in in down this this systematic hate and abuse of power you know we we're still in the midst of it i think that's the biggest point that that i hope that people understand from this is yeah we're going through history and we show a lot of things in history what we really got to understand is the technology is a little bit better television screens are easier to see but the same underlying systems are at play let's scare the shit out of them Let's scare them into compliance. Let's vilify all those that are not following the agenda. And we will make it all criminalized. And that way we keep society separate. Yep. Keep society separate. Yep. Yeah. So now, either way, when we look at Anslinger, we could probably declare that he was originally the declarer of the war on drugs. We could use those terms, right? He was also the individual, though, if anybody likes to use the gateway, <laughs> mm. right? The gateway theory. Um, yep. That Harry Anslinger, again, originally said marijuana creates in its users insanity, criminality, and death. As time went on and people started learning and realizing that what he said was wrong. Right. That this was not what we were seeing in people as yeah. it was eventually being disproved, right, as time went on. He changed his tune. And what he said was that it's the first step to heroin use. Yep. That yep. is where we get the gateway. And yep. so if you guys ever say that, you're speaking through 
Harry Anslinger. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. And then in 1951, we get a new law that comes about that's called the Boggs Act. Now, the premise, and I want everybody to kind of understand the premise of drug laws in our country, right? Again, they're laws that are conducted by us to govern the conduct of them, us being upper white middle class, them being minorities, lower class. Um, and that's the premise of most of our laws that have always been passed. Laws conducted yep. by us to govern the conduct of them. And yep. they are always based on a similar premise. We talked about this a little bit last week with our youth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anytime that we see an increase in drug use, particularly by our youth, we will, we will create new laws and we will increase penalties. Yep. And the Boggs Act established the first mandatory prison sentences, right? For violations of narcotics laws. The funny thing about narcotics is that term in and of itself means downers. So cocaine is technically not a narcotic, but it was fallen, it did, it was categorized in that. Under the legislation that was sponsored by, and it was a guy by the name, uh, Representative um, uh, Hale Boggs, and he was of Louisiana, uh, penalties for selling narcotics at that time increased to two to five years in a federal penitentiary for first offenders. It was about five to 10 for a second offense, and it was 10 to 20 years for third offenders, right? 1956, you get another drug law, and this one was called the Daniel Act, and it was named after Senator Price Daniel of Texas. We passed the Daniel Act, which increased the penalties in every offense category that had just been increased times four for the Boggs Act times eight, right? So with the passage of each of these acts, the states passed Little Boggs Act and the Little Daniels Act. So you had federal and then you had states that were passing these little ones, right? So that in the period of like 1958 to to 1969, and we'll use in the Commonwealth of, of Virginia, right? And Virginia was typical. Um, the most heavily penalized crime in Commonwealth was possession of marijuana or any other drug, right? It led to a mandatory minimum sentence of 20 years, no part of which you were eligible for parole or probation. And as to part of it, were you eligible for a suspended sentence? So just to show you really quick where this was in that time frame, right? First degree murder in Virginia had a mandatory minimum of 15 years. Rape had a mandatory minimum of 10 years. Possession of marijuana, not to mention sales, is a mandatory minimum of 40 for sales, but 20 years for possession. Wow. So you could get 15 years for first degree murder, five years for rape. 20 years just for possessing it, and 40 if you sold it. Wow. The greatest question that I've always asked myself again is how did Congress have the ability to pass these laws? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, just to give you guys a quick synopsis, Timothy Leary, okay, who was, um, you know, he was a uh, professor at Harvard University. He did the mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin experiments and LSD with his students. I used yep. to love to put his class. Me uh, too. <laughs> Me too. Most his students, right? Uh, eventually, he was fired um, from Harvard uh, for this. But um, 
he got arrested um, crossing the Mexican and from, from Mexico in the United States. Um, he got arrested for possessing marijuana. Um, he was originally sentenced to 20 years in federal prison, I believe, and um, he fought it. And there was a case, Leary versus the United States. And they ended up determining that the Marijuana Tax Act was unconstitutional because it required self-incrimination. Right? But what's even crazier about it, okay, was that he was then in the state of California, and actually Laguna Beach, I think he was, he was caught with two roaches. Right. And he was sentenced to 10 years in state prison. And then he was also sentenced to another 10 years for being arrested prior by the federal government. So he got 20 years in state prison that were to run consecutively, not concurrently, but consecutively, even though the federal law right, had found that it to be unconstitutional. And so that case was actually dropped. Wow. He still got another 10 years for being arrested by the federal government on top of the other 10 that he got for the possession of two roaches. Okay. But either way, in 1969, we have a new drug law, which is actually the first one in this country's history that, that does not follow that formula, right, that we had just mentioned. Although we saw an increase in youth or use by our youth but we, for, for the first time, decreased penalties. I mean, it was the 1969 Dangerous Substance Act. Um, and, uh, and this is where we actually abandon the taxing mythology. Now, I didn't explain to you guys how the taxing worked, right? And I don't know if we really want to go into that, into this episode, but if anybody is interested in sort of looking at what that actually means, because again, the federal government did not necessarily, even at that time, especially with the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, believe they had the ability to pass a general criminal law that all that affected all states. Mm -hmm. Technically, it's not the Constitution, right? So, how did they do it? Well, one of the things that the federal government and Congress does have the ability to do is regulate taxes, and so they basically did it through a tax. Doctors paid a tax to prescribe it. If you were caught without it, you had to pay a tax, which was hypothetically about a thousand bucks. Now, a thousand bucks in 1914 would basically send you to prison for tax evasion. Yeah, right. So in technicality, right, it was um, the way that it was written was in a taxing mythology idea. So, if anybody's interested in that, research it. It is very fascinating. Um, but in 1969, we do eliminate this taxing mythology, right? And so this is actually what it does at this point in time, and this is where the schedules come in. Right? Schedule one is a drug that is is uh, has no medicinal purposes for it and is highly addictive. Right? At this point in time, of course, we all know that in the 60s, all hallucinogenics with drugs were legal. Yeah. Yeah. They eventually fell into schedules. All hallucinogenic drugs became Schedule Ones. Marijuana is a Schedule One. Heroin is a Schedule One. Most other drugs are not. Cocaine is a Schedule Two, and it is still today. Um, you actually can get a prescription of cocaine mm -hmm. a powder, okay, that you can snort. Right. 
<laughs> right. Diesel stuff, right? right. <laughs> you go right. to your doctor, man. I need to get it. <laughs> oh, man. Right. You're not going to get it like that. <laughs> no. um, methamphetamine, schedule two. Amphetamines, schedule two. Um, pretty much all opioids are schedule twos, except for heroin. Heroin is a schedule one. So fentanyl, which again is the most powerful that we give humans, is yep. a schedule two. Um, and um, so just to kind of give you that scenario there. Well, before we move on to though, let's, let's, let's really take a, a couple things apart real quick. You know, we're going to, of course, we are always going to, you know, have a higher schedule on hallucinogenic drugs because they open us up to our consciousness. That was the whole point of when we were doing those, when those experiments were happening with the hallucinogenics is because they do open you up to consciousness. Yes. The government doesn't want you to be that way for sure. Yes. But if you want to go, if you want to go into the, the, um, the crazy story behind this, because mm-hmm. and this is another part of the story that always fascinated fascinated me. Okay, you know, our government is fucked up. Okay, I, and again, we know that, and I want to say that clearly, very clearly out there. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to give you guys the fun story about this. Um, not everybody knows this. But this is factual. You can look this stuff up in some very valid sites. All right. But again, our government's fucked up. So in the immediate wake of World War II, all right, the Allies were highly respected for their role in ending, of course, the reign of the Third Reich. But the Allied powers, right, also made very controversial decisions in secret, okay, that were kept classified for decades. We do have that information today. And again, I'll give you the sources. You can look it up if you are interested. Their most contentious action, okay, was the creation of what was called Operation Paperclip. Okay, Operation Paperclip was a covert intelligence project that brought over 1,600 Nazi scientists in the United States for research. So at the end of the war, the Allies scrambled, okay, to collect German intelligence and technology that would otherwise fall into the hands of the Soviet Union. And of course, this was during the impending Cold War, right, that basically threatened to destroy the peace. The United States granted a whole shitload of Nazi scientists immunity for their war crimes so that they could work in their labs instead of in Russian ones. Right now, during the early period of the Cold War, the CIA became convinced that communists, right, had discovered a drug or technique that would allow them to control human minds. Okay, so in response, the CIA began its own secret program, and this was called MK Ultra. And what this was was to search for a mind control drug that could be weaponized against the enemies. Mm. Now, if you think about the insanity and how fucked up we are, okay? Now, if anybody knows about the Nuremberg trials, okay, the Nuremberg trials were trials that took place of high-ranking Nazi officials that were tried, they were convicted, 
and most of them were sentenced to death for crimes against humanity. Now, part of that, okay, crimes against humanity is experimenting on humans without their consent, leading to the death of the right. Jews that they did. Right. Which was part of the information that the United States wanted. The experiments and the knowledge they gained from killing these Jews and the tortures yep. that they did and what they what they knew. Our government is fucked up. Okay. So MK Ultra was from the CIA, which was run, which was basically to run experiments on unwilling and unknowing participants that led to the death of some. Yes. Yes. Is that crimes against humanity? Sounds like it. Now this operated from the 50s until the early 60s, right? And it was created and it was run by a chemist, and his name was Sidney Gottlieb. Okay. <clears throat> now, as part of the search for drugs that would allow people to control the minds of humans, right? <laughs> human mind control, CIA scientists became aware of the existence of LSD. Right? And this actually became an obsession for the early directors of the MK Ultra. And actually, the MK Ultra director, Sidney Gottlieb, can now be seen as the man who brought LSD to America, right? He was the unwitting godfather of the entire LSD counterculture. In the early, so in the early 50s, he arranged for the CIA to pay $240,000 to buy the world's entire supply of LSD. Right? He brought this to the United States and he began spreading it around to hospitals, to clinics, to prisons and other institutions. And he was asking them uh, through bogus foundations right, to carry out research projects and find out what LSD was, how people reacted to it, and how it might be able to be used as a tool for mind control. Now, the people who volunteered for these experiments right, and began taking LSD in many cases found it very pleasurable. Oh yeah. Now you had a whole slew of the testing that they did that was again in prisons and mental hospitals, all these other places that these people were given it without knowing, right? And it literally, made people go insane, people committed suicide. There was all kinds of horrific things uh, that came from it. <clears throat> now, that will blame on the drug, but not... Blame on the drug, yes, but is that the facts, right? Right, right. So, now, the people who voluntarily did it, again, they found it pleasurable, and they told their friends about it, right? Mm -hmm. Now, who were these people? Well, I'll give you guys a couple names. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was also the one that did the um, Kesey uh, acid test in San Francisco. Um, and uh, he got his LSD in an experiment that was sponsored by the CIA by MKUltra. That was also by Sidney Gallier. Robert Hunter, one of my favorite lyricists. He was the lyricist for The Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia. Yeah which went on to become a great purveyor of the LSD culture also. Allen Ginsberg, who was the poet who preached the value of the great uh, personal adventure of using LSD, got his first LSD from Sidney Gottlieb, although he never knew that name. <laughs> so 
the CIA brought LSD to America unwittingly. And actually, it's a, it's a huge irony, right, that the drug that the CIA hoped would be its key to controlling humanity actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion yep. <laughs> that was yep. dedicated to destroying everything that the CIA held dear. And Absolutely. Absolutely. And you got to love it because it did the absolute opposite, where it was not at all the weapon they hoped it to be, but it was actually the opening of, of all that, you know, the veil covers. So it's an amazing opening to walk in both worlds, to see things from a different perspective. And, you know, I think that while there have been people that have had very bad experiences with that, the majority of people that have had experiences have, have been have come to just greater understanding. And of course, we cannot at all let that go on. We've got to highly schedule that simply because we would be uncontrollable. Yes. But then also when we're talking about hefty, hefty prison sentences. And then we look on the tail end of that where we see a higher rate of our youth begin to use, yes. you know, we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking at? We're looking at mostly fathers because we got to remember women were still not really moving out of the house all that much. They weren't, you know, doing as much. So we see a lot of absentee fathers that are happening with these sentences for large sentences. And so many people ask how our youth, how we've gotten where we are with our youth. And I say, go back and look. Just go back and look at the dynamics of how we all know as adults that that every choice we make, be it negative, positive, whatever, it all has a consequence. Every bit of it. Absolutely. And and how do we as as an entity called the government make choices and we the people are the ones that are are going to catch the consequence. And yet, absolutely, there is because that's the platform and they are who they are. Once again, they have the means and the ways to. To, I guess. I'm trying not to use the word mind fuck us all into taking once again, the 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 blame and, and the negative attention off of themselves, put it back down on we the people. Again, Absolutely. I think we we look at this where stigma with mental health is born all during that time. The 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 stigma of addiction is born within that time. You know, I think one of the things that this country has always done and and cannot continue is completely prey upon the weak. Well, if you want to look at the irony behind this too, okay, is that you know, like we look at homeless today. Okay. You know, you know, so many people think that all the homeless people are all on drugs. That's not true. You're right. No. It, it, you know, there's, I think statistically it's like 30, 35 to 40% are on drugs. You got about 30 to 35% that are mentally ill. Right. And of course you've got people that just can't afford housing and you got right. you know, different things like that. But if you go back to this time frame. 
okay? And you study everything that transpired, okay? We also had what was called deinstitutionalization, right? Where we deinstitutionalized. We shut down mental hospitals, okay? Mm -hmm. So during the 50s, during the 60s, we're bringing LSD in this country, okay? Through the MK Ultra, we're giving it to people. They're liking it. They're going like, shit, this is great, you know? Um, and uh, and then, so they're the, they're the instigators of this drug brought in this country. And then at the same time, we're shutting down mental hospitals. We're promising that we're going to open up these outpatient clinics everywhere. They only opened up about half of them, right? That they said they were going to open up. Mm -hmm. so, so now we're putting people on drugs. We're shutting down mental hospitals. Are we creating that environment that we're just talking about? Absolutely. About Absolutely. You know, our federal government is fucked up. Federal government is fucked right. up. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So the war on drugs, okay, to me, again, it's a very interesting war because it was cheap to fight at first, right? Why? Because the change in, you know, cheap and easy forfeiture, mm. right, was, was the premise. We take properties, we can take, this will fund this war, right? Yeah. Of course, then brings us to another challenge in violation of our Bill of Rights, which again can be an entirely other show. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yep. And, uh, but it was 1971 when war was officially, by words, declared. And yes. here, is, here is the declaration. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas where, within the government in which this problem is now being handled. Think about the words. All-out offensive. All-out offensive. War on drug abuse. Mm-hmm. Abuse. Yep. Well, who is that? Right. It's people. I right. Mean, people. You know? Right. I mean, it's right. I mean, just those words provoke fear. They provoke anger. Yes. We hate war. That's right. I don't know if we do, but that's right. No. I like to say we hate war. We're right. We're supposed to hate war. <laughs> Oh, it's our, our our biggest go-to at all times. Yes. yes, of course that did. And you think about the the angry white middle class men watching that very, you know, address and they're pissed. And they believe this 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 what he says goes. And that's what they so now we've got a whole new deepening of this racist this shameful people aren't human we've got just this whole rebirth of this anger just gearing up and gearing up and gearing up it sickens me man i tell you it just gets, it's it sickens me it deeply you know so you got to ask yourself you know why did nixon declare this war okay 
Now, I want to give you guys a uh, snippet real quick from his um, uh, Nixon's domestic policy advisor, and his name was John Elrickman. Now, as this show, when we're doing this, okay, I don't have any legitimate proof that what this guy said is actually what and the reason Nixon declared this war. Okay, so I want to make sure that that's very clear because I'll give you the flip side to this story also that maybe this guy's lying and I can tell you the reason why. But let me show you this video real quick. Um, and this was a statement that was by John Elrickman. Um, I don't, it was actually in a, it was in an article. So um, I am voicing this. <laughs> <laughs> the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So that so that's a statement, again, by uh, one of his advisors, okay? And, um, you know, this, this video in the war on drugs within that is based on a premise of racist, politically motivated yep. crusade, right? Yep. Yep. So I wanted to see if Nixon had any racist tendencies, mm-hmm. which could lead me towards not believing that statement or let's take a look at this. And last night I tell you to watch that thing on television and I did. Yeah. To see those, those monkeys from those African countries. And then they, the tail wags the dog there, doesn't it? Yeah. The tail wags the dog. I, for example, uh, just had a call from Reagan, California, and, uh, uh, you know, he's been out there and so forth. And, uh, and uh, as you can imagine, there's there's their strong feeling that we just shouldn't, uh, as he said, he saw these, as he said, these, uh, these cannibals on television last night, and he said, it up <laughs> yeah so he's that's pretty clear uh, <laughs> and we have to all we you know we were already even by this time because you know the fear about about black people and their tendencies and who they were and they were these mad men that would rape white women i mean this this whole fear propaganda had been going on for years and then here comes you know it's that's the result of that you know with slavery ended we had to start to scare the people because now we weren't going to be able to be separate whenever the you know the whole you know separate i can't even think right now i'm so wired from those videos man but Mm -hmm. but you know when segregation was over we had to place more fear and fear we are afraid, so we have to control people. I don't understand how we don't, as an American people, all of us, understand how controlled we've been. The very things we show up in our lives to, to watch, 
to listen to, to finally just read. We called him the greatest things ever. Right. And yet they are still, still tools for control. Yep. And we got to take our power back. You know, if you look at that and you, and you, you know, look at Elrixman's, you know, claim, I mean, the statistics yeah. bear out that claim, right? Yeah. Well, you know, the For black sure. Americans, you know, aren't significantly more likely to use or to sell drugs. They're much more Correct. likely to be arrested for them, right? Correct. Black people are convicted of drug charges. They're generally, they face longer yep. prison terms for the same actual crimes. And this was yep. according to, there was a 2012 report from the U.S. Sentencing Commission. The quote seemed to confirm what a lot of people suspected. But here's the thing, right? Nixon didn't have to be explicitly racist for the drug war to end up disproportionately hurting Black people, right? Right. You know, in fact, right. time and time again, the story of racism in America, right, in the past few decades has been that Black people are hurt by policies that appear to be race neutral because mm -hmm. the people, including law enforcement, right, carry all sorts of subconscious biases against yep. minority Americans. Yep. But Elric, Elric, uh, Elricman's claim, right, is likely to, is probably an oversimplification, right, according to, you know, people. You know, there's no doubt Nixon was racist. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt, yeah. But there's also signs that Nixon wasn't solely motivated by politics or race. I mean, he, you know, for one, like, you know, personally, he despised drugs to, point, yeah. to the point that, you know, it's not surprising he, you know, would want to rid the world of them. Right, right. There's also evidence that L. Rickman was bitter and he felt betrayed by Nixon. Right, because he spent time in prison over the Watergate. So he could have lied, right? Yeah. He definitely could have lied. Now, in January of 1973, you had New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller that proposed harsher prison sentences, you know, including like mandatory minimums for drug trafficking. And, you know, Nixon followed his plan with his own proposal. And it was in March 1973 that he outlined a plan to step up prison sentences, including mandatory minimums for drugs. And Nixon was very clear in his intent. But the plan, you know, was swallowed in that chaos of, of Watergate. And, you know, from this point, the war on drugs would slowly get more punitive. Yeah. Under the Reagan administration in the 80s, right? The true yep. war on drugs began. Yes. Sentences for drugs went way up, especially through um, mandatory minimums. Yes. More funding, right, went to law enforcement um, than to prevention and treatment. Yep. I'm going to show you this, real, this video real quick. of, And we went directly to the children in that time, too. <clears throat> War to the children. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. From the beginning of our administration, we've taken strong steps to do something about this horror. 
Tonight, I can report to you that we've made much progress. 37 federal agencies are working together in a vigorous national effort. And by next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. We have increased seizures of illegal drugs. Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. Last year alone, over 10,000 drug criminals were convicted, and nearly $250 million of their assets were seized by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And drug abuse is not a so-called victimless crime. Everyone's safety is at stake when drugs and excessive alcohol are used by people on the highways or by those transporting our citizens or operating industrial equipment. Drug abuse costs you and your fellow Americans at least $60 billion a year. As a parent, I'm especially concerned about what drugs are doing to young mothers and their newborn children. Listen to this news account from a hospital in Florida of a child born to a mother with a cocaine habit. Nearby, a baby named Paul lies motionless in an incubator, feeding tubes riddling his tiny body. He needs a respirator to breathe and a daily spinal tap to relieve fluid buildup on his brain. Only one month old, he's already suffered two strokes. Now you can see why drug abuse concerns every one of us, all the American family. Okay, that video is interesting interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Okay, yeah. obviously we've got Reagan amping it up, amping it up, yep. federal agencies, you know, rest, yep. things like that, okay? Yep. And Nancy Reagan brings an interesting manipulative manipulative side to the story though okay she does baby that baby was not on crack okay i teach physiological effects of alcohol okay crack may delay a little bit of, of things they've done enormous amounts of study they actually did a 25-year study that followed babies that were born to crack cocaine addicted mothers that were found that the children were slow to develop. But what surprised the researchers, right, was that the determining factor wasn't crack. It was poverty. Right? Nancy's story of that child has no validity with a child That's dependent on crack. It was something else that she was talking about. Okay. Yeah. That That's our biggest effort. would have been, been more likely to have been alcohol. Right. Because crack, meth, heroin, all of these other drugs that, yes, these babies get addicted to because they will kick when they get out, but it doesn't cause what she said. They have done enormous amounts of studies on this. And again, I'm not condoning drug use with, with no, correct. women in any way. Correct. But again, it goes back to the fear tactics, right? Right. Now, again, at that point in time, maybe they believe that. I don't know. Um, I mean, I know they keep having stories about crack babies, crack babies, crack babies. I I feel quite sure that they believed that in and just in who they are inherently. I I believe they probably truly believed that. But 
here we go again. I mean, and this this whole video reminds me of what we talked about with Tucker last week with there are shreds of truth in around, but more fear and misinformation is heaped on top. And, and the biggest manipulation in it, in it all is to have Nancy, who's a mother, come on and talk about this child. Now, you've got countless people watching that and they are again that the generation that really believes in their government you know they they hear this information and it's just so easy to not see people as human beings and again we're continuing this race the systematic racism but the biggest epidemic is the poverty to this day absolutely yeah and and you know and the thing behind it is that you know, with, you know, if you look at the deficiencies of a child that's born to a crack smoking mother, the biggest deficiencies are going to be malnutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, those are going to be the factors, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, methamphetamine, um, you know, similar stuff. The, the, the substance that, that causes the most harm to a baby is our legal drug, alcohol. Absolutely. You know, now that Absolutely. would be more a little bit in line of what she was talking about, you right? Know? I mean, it's the right. number one, you know, cause of of uh, you know premature deaths, uh, deaths, uh, um, stillborns. You know, um, uh, you got you know alcohol, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, right. fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, you know, all of those things. But there's never any. There was never any mention of any of this stuff. You know, within their talks, it's all drugs and primarily crack, crack, yep. crack, crack, big epidemic. Right. Was it? Yes, it was an epidemic. There yeah, was a lot of crack, was. a lot of cocaine, you know, coming in. Um, yeah. But again, the bigger emphasis was on the crack, right? And um, because, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, when we look at sentencing, a comprehensive examination of the 100 to 1 crack versus cocaine um sentencing disparity right yet you know if you would get you know for five grams of crack carries a minimum yeah. five-year federal prison sentence right while distribution of 500 grams of powder cocaine gave you five years of federal. Yeah. yeah what's the difference between crack and coke baking powder <laughs> Absolutely. in the process. <laughs> that's it. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing added. That's there's no illegal substance that's added to cocaine to get crack. Right. So the only illegal thing is you have crack that is cocaine and cocaine that is cocaine. Absolutely. Where's, where's the disparity here? You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, now, Crack is very addictive. And the reason it's so addictive is because when we look at, you know, why are substances, certain things more addictive than others, right? Well, when you take a substance that gets to your brain quick, the quicker you get something to your brain, the more addictive That's it right. is. That's right. So there's a That's difference right. between snorting cocaine and smoking crack or freebase, right? Um, because uh, smoking gets it to your brain the quickest. It even gets it faster uh, than uh, intravenous drug use. Yeah. In seconds, but yeah. it gets to your brain quicker because you smoke, goes into your lungs, right to your brain. Right. Thinking my arm has got to circulate throughout my body. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, 
Now, when you're smoking it, you lose a lot of it versus when you inject it, you get it all. <laughs> right. Correct. Um, right. So there's that disparity between the addictive potential of, of intravenous versus smoking. But snorting cocaine versus smoking crack, smoking is going to be way more addictive. Gets to your brain quicker. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think, too, though, that cocaine was also in that time was also considered a rich white man's drug. Crack, again, then carries another stigma of poverty with it. Well, you know? I'm going to show you a video now of Bush, OK, oh, because Bush escalates the fear. Right. We need more prisons Who goes to prison. Bad people. That's right. Right? That's right. So if you're, you know, if you're a drug user, you go to prison, you're obviously a bad person. That's right. But I caught something in this video that I'd seen before that I never caught before when I really contemplated and thought about this. Okay. Awesome. Because he is going to tell us why, exactly why people in poor housing are going to get it big, bad, uh, bigger, wow. worse. And I didn't catch this before. Check this out. Wow. Here, the rules have changed. If you sell drugs, you will be caught. And when you're caught, you will be prosecuted. And once you're convicted, you will do time. Caught, prosecuted, punished. I'm also proposing that we enlarge, enlarge our criminal justice system across the board, at the local, state, and federal levels alike. We need more prisons, more jails, more courts, more prosecutors. So tonight I'm requesting altogether an almost billion and a half dollar increase in drug-related federal spending on law enforcement. And while illegal drug use is found in every community, nowhere is it worse than our public housing projects. You know, the poor have never had it easy in this world. But in the past, they weren't mugged on the way home from work by crack gangs. And their children didn't have to dodge bullets on the way to school. And that's why I'm targeting $50 million to fight crime in public housing projects. Think about this, right? I mean, think about this from the common <laughs> right? You're going to get mugged by who? Your kid, right? It's going to be like your neighbor, you know, your kid. Yep. Okay. So we want to protect your family. But we're making the assumption that all these drugs are, are going through these project housings. So we're going to arrest you. Well, if it's not you, your kid, and then we're going to arrest your neighbors, right? Because that's who's living there. Yeah. I mean, think about, think about how he said that, right? I mean, it's a clear picture to me of why black people in these projects, right, are getting arrested in massive numbers because yep. that's who we target. That's right. I mean, we put money That's specifically right. aside specifically. just for that. Just for that. That's right. Um, I caught that when I was watching that last time, and, I, and it dawned on me, and I was insane. like, wow, he literally says it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Without it, like no muzzle, no, no, no filter, just there it is. I'm going to arrest all you black people in, in your project. That's right. That's right. That's nice right. Video because we care about you. That's right. That's right. We don't want you to get mugged on your way home. Yes. Yeah, so basically what he's saying is for the poor 
white people that have to live in these projects. We want to protect you from the addicted, crazed black people. Yes. Man, this is our country. (laughs) And this is the stuff that, you know, this is all within our generation. Okay. Yeah. Obviously you're going, you know, um, Nixon, Nixon went out of office the year I was born. Right. But obviously I remember Reagan. I remember Bush. Oh yeah. Clinton. Oh yeah. All the the presidents, you know, up to. Yeah. Um, But Reagan and Bush pushed it hard, pushed it hard. And so I want to let everybody know that, um, you know, this, this show here is going to be a part one of a two part series. And the first part is the part that we have struggled to walk in these people's shoes. Yep. But we're not done. That's right. And so we're going to do a part two of working to be able to, and I think we're going to be able to get this a little bit, where we will be able to walk a mile in some of the shoes. May not be all. Right. But we're going to go ahead and close this episode here where we end on Bush. That's right. In with a bang. Bush is the bang. Yeah. Anything you want to say? Well, I'm grateful that we're going to do this as a two-part series because we have to visit the history in order to really try to figure out and and realize how we got here. It's easy to talk about solutions, and we want to do a part two that really brings a solution. Eric and I can both share from our personal history how we have you know, done things in our own lives and, and how we've come against uh, uh, our the stigma and how we've overcome that. And, and we live our lives today to try and overcome this stigma. But it's hard to do that and bring a solution if we don't know where we started from. So, you know, on my part, I ask you not to leave this video here. Do some of your own research. Take some of the things that we've talked about today and 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 do your own research to really understand how we got here it's it's not as cut and dry and black and white as as it may seem yes there's this is this is generational and historic and i want to say real quick again that you know we don't have agendas behind this and i know and it always seems to and i think about this it always seems to roll out that like against republicans which is not what we're doing right. granted harry anslinger was a republican nixon was a republican reagan was a republican bush was a republican okay so but and yes we are having a hard time walking in their shoes right but again at the same time i don't necessarily believe in all cases in every argument that i can prove somebody's motives and somebody's own agendas and their own reasons why they did certain right. things. I can't do that with Nixon, right? Did Nixon right. genuinely care about people? Possibly. All right. Yeah. I don't know for sure. Yeah. He had some racist tendencies to him. Um, now I will not stand up at all for Harry Anslinger. Um, right. There's actually every bit about him that sort of disgusts me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Reagan and Bush. Again, I'm not. We're not arguing whether they were good presidents, bad pre- presidents, or anything. Right. Nature. We're looking at it more of the That's drug, the drug use, abuse policies, and the effectiveness. I don't agree with their policies. We should be probably putting a whole lot more money into reducing demand versus reducing supply. Right. 
It's a plan. Right. It doesn't work. It's ineffective. Right. Again, I'll buy a bunch of cocaine when we, we log off here. Um, on okay. the, and I can get fentanyl and <laughs> right <laughs> on, just on, right. on my computer. You know, <laughs> that's it. That's right. Have it delivered to the door. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it's it's crazy. I mean, it really yeah. is. I mean, drug drugs yeah. are available everywhere. You know, which again Absolutely. goes back to the argument: legalization. Do we do we remain? The problem, and I want to say this too, is, you know, people always throw out the, well, California has legalized drugs and we still have, or marijuana, and we still have murders around weed. And yes, you're right. We actually do. But the problem is, is it's not legal, right? It's decriminalized. Yeah. Is what it is. Big difference. Right? It is. Yeah. And there's yeah. still certain cities in California that won't allow anybody to sell it there. And actually, usually the ones where the murders are happening are in the actual cities where you can't, you, they don't have any marijuana shops. Absolutely. So, well, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. And so, you know, who, who do we want to buy our drugs from? Some crazy freaking, uh, you know, a home lab somewhere. Right. That people can put anything in we want or. Right. Maybe the pharmacy. Absolutely. And if we're going to talk about it being a gateway, the only reason I believe in my heart that it could be considered a gateway is because when you got to go to the same place to buy marijuana as you do to buy heroin, crack and, and cocaine, what's the difference? You are putting your life in danger in certain situations. You know, the gateway, for, and when I look at it, okay, is an idea where you say, okay, I did this. And then it leads me to this. Okay. Now there are, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have smoked weed that have never done heroin. Okay. Absolutely. So, so to say that, that it is a gateway is a fallacy anyways, because Absolutely. it doesn't, that, you know, that, you know, that would be saying, if I did it, I would do this. That's right. Case. It right. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the gateway thing to me idea is that if, you have people that do something and they get, oh, wow, this feels really good. And um, and then they go on to try something else. It really doesn't have anything to do with the substance. It's more to Correct. do with the person. And the fact yes. that, oh, I like this altered state of feeling. Now I want to try something different, right? Yep. What was my gateway? Cigarettes. Oh. It was. It can be, I mean, it I, can and be I considered. laugh about that because, I mean, it literally was. When I, if I were to put a, If I were to put that mindset there, I smoked cigarette. I smoked a cigarette before I did anything else. Okay, and um, I, I remember living in Northern California. I was in like junior, maybe like fifth grade, some sixth grade or something like that, right? And I remember oh, wow. taking my dad's cigarettes, right? And I remember going to the side of the house and and taking a puff, hacked, felt like crap, right? But I was determined. Okay, <laughs> I was committed. committed. I like it. Okay. And so, but then as I continued doing it, I just, I would get a head rush, you know? And I remember yeah. like going to smoke and I'd smoke it and I'd smoke it so fast. And then I would be like, oh my God. And I, I, I mean, there were times where like it kind of like I fell down yeah. a little and I'd get that head rush. I like that. I mean, I'm the, I'm the epitome of addiction, right? Oh, yeah. Everything I did was like, if it felt good, that's right. It altered my consciousness. I want to do something More. else. Yep. I'm going to try it all. You know, yep. Um, yep. had no fear. Alcohol for a lot of people is the gateway, you know, to, mm -hmm. to other things. Yep. 
Um, you know, people drink alcohol. I mean, you know, I looked if I look at the order of stuff I did, marijuana was the third thing, you know, from oh, yeah, me too. Yep. alcohol, then I smoked yep. pot, you know, and then I went to bigger and better. Yep. Yep. Not better, but you know, I mean. not better. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> bigger and addicting. <laughs> right. Right. More, more powerful, you know. That's right, for sure. <laughs> but, for sure. <laughs> but you know, again, I mean, that gateway argument is a Harry Anslinger. I mean, he's mm-hmm. the one that instigated that concept, you know, that if you smoke this, it will lead to this. Marijuana yeah. will lead to because he had to go away from the the insanity, criminality and death because people weren't buying it anymore because right. people started doing a little bit of it. And they're like, well, wait a minute, I'm not getting crazy. I'm not yep. people. I'm not raping people. I'm actually yep. sitting and eating more. Right. Exactly. I'm, I'm feeling like a little more loving and, and peaceful. And and yeah, that's what always happens when the agenda is exposed and the lies start to be exposed. Now we've got to. We've got to change it. Yep. we got to switch. And, and you say it like you never said the other thing before. That's right. That's right. That's right. Crazy. We're still seeing that. We're still seeing all that today. Man. We're still seeing this. Say this thing. What do you mean? I said that. I never said that. <laughs> Another great show. I look forward to part two, man. Absolutely. Very wow. interesting. I've learned a lot as I'm sure our audience has. I'm not the number guy like you are, but I love the fact that you are able just to bring so much accuracy and, and information. Well, for me, it's not that difficult because, um, I teach a lot of this stuff, you know, so we do, um, you know, in, in like the first mod, which is kind of a historical, you know, and we look at, you know, history behind drug laws and, you know, um, you know, we went, we went a little more in depth in certain areas than this. I don't go as much into like mm-hmm. ultra and operation paperclip and, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but that always fascinated me. Yeah. It really did. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, you know, it's like you're, you know, you being, you know, you being married and you're, and you're, you know, and your wife's like, you know, wanting you to sleep with the girl in front, you know, one of those, you know, weird things. Mm-hmm. And then you do it and then she freaking right. forces you. Exactly. Doing it. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know? Welcome to America's government. It's ridiculous. And it's crazy, you know, here, I know. LSD. oh, you like it? Great. Well, now we're going <laughs> to, now we're going to you know? shut it down. Anything good, we're going to shut down. Yeah. I know. It's crazy to me. It, it yeah, absolutely yeah. is crazy. I don't understand also, you know, and again, you know, I am pro legalizing drugs 100%. Yeah. Reason being yeah. Because I know I have lots of information. I have lots of stats. I've really studied it. I've analyzed it. You know, I've looked at, you know, the problems that come from drug, drug use. Are they, are they from the drug itself or the legality right. the drug itself? Right. Right. I can't come up with any other conclusion that the legality of the drug is what causes most of the problems in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Because our laws don't stop people from doing it. People will not do drugs because it's illegal. Oh, for sure. I I know. And if I'm already doing this illegal, I might as well do this illegal. It just makes it all pretty much. Well, easy. And especially when you're, you're trying to, to afford a habit that is yeah. astronomically expensive. Absolutely. You know, you, you you have to do what you have to do to get your to get your habit because you're hooked. You are without a doubt. 
you're going to do whatever yeah. you're going to, you need to do, you know, to get yeah. it. Absolutely. And so that plays a lot into murder, crime, mm -hmm. salts, you know, I mean, harm, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now, I do also want to say, though, I am not for legalizing to use it myself. Okay. Right. No, I, yeah. I personally, when, um, you know, I don't play well with it. Yeah, I don't either. I can't. I just, yeah. I just can't. <laughs> or it doesn't play well with me. I don't know. Which... Yeah. <laughs> either way. Yeah, I can't do it. Yeah. I just can't do it. And yeah. I prefer getting high, clean and sober. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I walk clean, baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, what's up. All right. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. This has absolutely yes. been a blast. We will come back next year, next week for part two. That's right. Of this episode. And uh, you got any final words? Yep. In the meanwhile, go over and check out the High Wild Clean podcast with Mr. Eric McCoy and head over to the Transgender Mentor on Sunday nights with me, LC, and Recovery Soul Food. And what were you thinking? Tremendous tremendous show i'm loving what you guys are doing joe make sure to check us out on our other platforms but until next week y'all keep walking a mile in yes. the shoes of that because understanding brings healing and i am continually trying to walk a mile in other shoes that's right baby All right. that's right see you next week <laughs>